0: So much of our practice is around exploring this experience of dukkha, of suffering. And uh, we found the right practice because that was the Buddha's own journey from the beginning of his spiritual journey, this was his quest. Is it possible to find a way to be free from suffering? And as he explored this question and found an understanding of suffering, he decided to teach And he famously said, what I teach is only suffering and its end. And so all of his teachings are oriented around this this question, how to more fully understand suffering. Not so that we can fix it, but so that that understanding will free us. That understanding will liberate the mind from the ways it suffers. And this exploration the uh, the Buddha the Buddha's definition or the Buddha's recognition around suffering is radically different from our usual perspective. I think A lot of us, at least I know for myself, before I came to this practice, I thought of suffering as something that happened to me, kind of like I was just this leaf in the wind and just buffeted around by the conditions of the world and I had very little say over when I was happy and when I was unhappy. And so from an ordinary perspective, or maybe from a pre-Dharma perspective, we think of suffering as something that happens to us. Stuff out there makes us suffer. And yet what the Buddha teaches us is that, yes, while there are things that happen in the world that are unpleasant, things that happen to us that create unpleasant experience, things that happen in the world that are unjust, that there's nothing inherently in what happens in the world that can make us suffer in this way of having the mind become constricted frozen, unable to respond skillfully. And so the Buddha's teaching for us is that dukkha itself is not so much the unpleasant experience, but rather our reaction to it. our reaction to unpleasant, our fears, our our, uh, aversions, our desires, our confusions. And the wisdom that grows around understanding suffering allows us to be responsive to the world as Rebecca said last night, you know, we can be responsive rather than reactive. Our reactivity is based in greed, aversion, delusion. And wisdom joins with compassion and love to support completely different response to suffering in the world to injustice to unpleasant experience love compassion wisdom generosity we could call some of the emotions of of wisdom the emotional terrain the emotional map of the heart that has opened to wisdom is really the map of the Brahma Viharas. Love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And these emotions, they're not passive emotions. Love acts in this world, compassion acts in this world. I think we we misunderstand the motivation. Uh, you know, sometimes we feel if we just settle back and accept things as they are, why would we do anything? Why would we why would we act? And and that perspective comes from this familiar perspective that we, you know, we tend to be motivated often by greed, aversion, delusion. We tend to act out of those. And from those, the perspective of those states, we cannot fathom any other way to act. And so we envision if we were free of greed, aversion, and delusion, we would just sit there. But that's not what happens the heart opens, connects, and breaks with that connection to suffering. Wants to respond, wants to act. And so this dukkha that the Buddha asked us to explore, the not, not that we're going to get rid of injustice in the world, but that we can begin to free our hearts from greed, aversion, and delusion and begin to act in the world from these beautiful emotions of love and wisdom. And so this teaching of the Buddha around dukkha is that it is greed, aversion, and delusion in our own minds that creates what we call dukkha. That there's a different way, that there's the possibility of a different way to relate to experience. And as we begin to touch into that, we begin to really understand what dukkha is. We understand the nature of dukkha. And we begin to see, too, in small ways, perhaps, we might see how... um, a reactivity, an aversion to a physical pain, for example, creates a whole complex of experience around that physical pain. And that when the mind lets go of that aversion around the physical pain, it doesn't even feel like pain anymore. It's not what we would call pain It's an unpleasant experience. And it's a vastly different experience than when we have that aversion, when we are fighting the unpleasant experience. And so this teaching of the Buddha, suffering results from craving, and craving happens in our minds. This is good news, because if it were the case that we were at the whims of the world, that our suffering was just a response, just, just like somebody was pushing a button on us. You know, it sometimes feels like we have buttons and that other people have the power to push them. But we more actually offer our buttons to be pushed in some ways. <laughs> and so, with this teaching about dukkha, we begin to recognize that the suffering, that there's a whole host of what we call suffering and not, ever, not all of what we call suffering at the outset we will be free of. Because at the outset we think unpleasant experience is suffering. But the mental pain and grief, that is what the Buddha said is possible to be free of. And so the suffering lies in our reactivity to experience, and it's possible to change our minds. So, this is the good news of this whole mechanism at work in our minds. It's not, it's not, we're not trapped by the conditions of the world there's a way in which our response to those conditions can be cultivated to move in a different direction. That different direction is not a change that makes us think injustice is okay. It's not a change that makes us think it's okay for unethical things to happen in the world. Quite the contrary. It is a change that allows us to fully acknowledge this is what is happening and with a heart of compassion to respond. Compassion naturally responds to suffering. So this teaching of the Buddha that dukkha is created in our minds. It's a reaction to experience. And we feel into this. We begin to understand how aversion and wanting actually constrict the heart. How it feels to be in a state of aversion. And we see the mind let go of it at times and recognize, wow, how much more ease there is as the mind releases aversion and can actually come into alignment with what's going on, which may be a painful experience or an uncontrollable experience, an unreliable experience. And so we we see this, we see how as the mind lets go of of that aversion or that wanting, how much more ease and peace there is in the mind. And so the question comes up, why on earth does a mind keep doing this? Why does it keep doing this? I've seen it. I've seen it. I've seen it's not useful. But it keeps doing it. So I wanted to explore that question. Why do our minds keep doing this? what can we learn about this i think our human organism naturally and kind of wants to move in the direction of well-being Much as a any creature of life wants to be in environments that support it and nourish it and not be in environments that lead to its harm, a single celled creature will move towards nourishment and away from a noxious environment, very natural function of life to move in this direction towards some degree of well-being. And in our human experience, we're, we're, we're vastly more complicated than a single-celled creature. And while we still do this same thing, we move towards the pleasant and away from the unpleasant, there's an awful lot going on in there in between something pleasant and the decision to act, the decision to move towards pleasant. Pleasant. And what we tend to do as human beings before we start to investigate this question of what is happiness and what leads to a true happiness, before we start to investigate that question, very much our organism tends to take the quickest route to well-being, the most like fast thing that will make me feel a little bit better in this next moment. We tend to go in that direction. Towards the pleasant, away from the unpleasant, very like the single-celled organism. And I'd like to, I like to, ex- you know, think, I think that this movement towards well-being, at a, at a deep level, this movement towards well-being in our Human system is connected to meta. It's connected to this. The wish we, we when we express the wish of meta, we express express. May I have ease of well being? May I be happy? May I be healthy? May 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 you be happy? May you be healthy? May you be safe? And this is expressing that wish for well-being, which is a very natural movement of the human being, a movement towards well-being. And so this movement towards well-being and this movement of connection to metta, I think have a, have a link deep in our system. And yet, as I said, there's all of these processes at work In the mind around trying to find well being, trying to move in the direction of well being. And our tendency is to, through habit, through um, having seen in our lives, when I get something I want, I get a moment of well being. And that happens over and over again. We get a moment of well-being, a feeling of release perhaps from the wanting that was associated with that, that desire. We've talked about recognizing how the wanting itself is suffering. And so we get a little bit of release there and we uh, begin to believe through repeated application of that principle that that's the only way to happiness. That's the best. We see that those moments of getting what we want don't last very long, but some part of us thinks, well, what I really need to do in order to have happiness in this life is just string a whole bunch of those moments together. That's what happiness would be. If I can figure out a way to navigate this life so that I can string together more and more moments of pleasant and less and less moments of unpleasant, that's as good as it's going to get. That's kind of how we think, what we think about happiness. And so there's all kinds of ideas in our minds and those participate in this process of moving in the direction of getting what we want. Like, for instance, you know, we want perhaps somebody to think well of us. And our mind creates plans or ideas about how it's going to go about having somebody think well of us. And envisions what might happen when somebody does think well of us and all of these thoughts all of these ideas in our mind these plans the idea of of I'm going to be able to have this person think well of me in the future all of these ideas beliefs opinions in this particular case tend to be pleasant and we're kind of living in that world of of pleasant thoughts of how great it's going to be in the future. And in this moment, as we're having those thoughts, we are experiencing pleasant right now because we've constructed a pleasant fantasy, basically. And craving can enter in here, does enter in here. When we're not mindful, when we're not aware of this process going on, You know, we're caught up in that fantasy and um, we're deceived in a way that this is the direction towards happiness. We're confused believing that this is the direction. And yet, perhaps if we could entirely live in our minds with pleasant fantasy construction and only experience the pleasant construction of our minds in that way without reality actually impinging on us, that might be a good strategy. But reality does impinge on us. We don't have control over whether that person thinks well of us. We don't have control over whether what we like will continue or end sometimes. And we see that when we meet this impermanent, unreliable, out of control nature of experience, we don't like it, we resist it, and we suffer. And we we somehow think that we've made a mistake or we've done something wrong because we haven't been able to make the world match our fantasy. It's not a mistake. It's the nature of experience to be impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable. And so, so much of our suffering comes from this meeting and resistance to just the nature of experience. We've been saying this a lot in the last few days, particularly the impermanent, unreliable, out-of-control nature of experience, and our resistance to that is so much of why we suffer. Resistance. Being that craving, that clinging, that desire to make things different, the desire to get rid of unpleasant, desire to hold on to pleasant. And at the same time, the same time, our suffering also seems deeply connected to this inner wish for well-being. We wish to be happy and safe and at ease. And the nature of impermanent, unreliable, out of control, those wishes seem out of reach sometimes and so when we're suffering often I'm not ready to say always but often at least in my own experience when we're experiencing some kind of suffering it seems to me there are two threads that we can open to. This, this wish, this thread, and when we are suffering around something, when we are we're angry about something, often it's because there's a deep wish for well-being underneath that that wish for well-being has been thwarted somehow when we're f- afraid there's a deep wish for safety that's connected to that fear and so as we open to our suffering we start to see that connection to that wish for well-being the wish the natural wish, a human wish, a core wish, actually, a core wish for well-being, happiness, ease, safety, that we share as human beings. And those wishes meet reality. The wishes of well-being and safety meet the truth of unreliable, impermanent, out of control, and collide. So these two threads, the truth and the wish for well-being I'll call the core truths of life, impermanent, unreliable, out of control, and the core wishes Happiness, safety, health, well-being—seems like it's not possible to have both. And the mind reacts to that. So almost in equal part, it's reacting against the the uh, the truth and holding on or trying to hold on to that wish. This is, I think, you know, the other day, last night, Rebecca said that her first movement with, with something was, no! And that's, that's that movement, this, this truth, it cannot be true. Because we so wish for the well-being, that movement from deep within us, we so wish for the well-being. I've had some experiences that have really helped to point me to this connection between my suffering, my reactivity, and this deep wish for well-being. some, some startling, startling uh, recognitions. one point, um, it was September... 2001, I was visiting my family during the September 11th attacks. And uh, I, they live in Tennessee, I live in California, and so I had flown to, Cali- to Tennessee and the planes were grounded. And when I finally left, I left the day after the plane started again. They were grounded for a couple of weeks, I think. And so there was some trepidation in getting on an airplane um, that day. There was bad weather in Tennessee, and so my plane was delayed, and I had a connection to make in Houston. So I landed in Houston late, and the last flight to California had already left, and so I needed to get a hotel. So I checked into a hotel at George Bush International Airport, And uh, sometime that evening, I was talking to a friend on the phone, making arrangements for my travel the next day. The power went out. I was out for a while, and I finally decided to get up and look out the window. It was really dark, you know? I was like, I, I couldn't see a thing. I, was, I, I, I resorted to using my indiglow watch to find my way to the bathroom, and I looked out the window, and it wasn't just the hotel that had lost power. As far as I could tell, it was the city. Power was out as far as I could see. My mind went to a terrorist attack. In my mind, George Bush International Airport was a perfect target for, <laughs> for a terrorist attack. It just seemed like it made sense. And so my mind just proliferated with fear. The fear was quite strong. And I, um, in that experience of the fear being so strong, my practice kicked in. It was really... I'm so grateful for the practice seeming to uh, take care of me when suffering gets strong. And so the uh, the fear was arising and the practice came in and, and almost automatically I started doing metta practice. May I be happy. May I be safe. As I expressed that wish, that one really landed. That wish, may I be safe, that really landed. And then I expressed it towards may all beings be safe, may all of us be safe and that one really, really landed. Yes, that is what I want. It's for all beings to be safe. And as I stayed with the metta, the fear, the fear disappeared and the, the feeling of connection and love and care and wish for safety for all beings was really strong, and then the mind would slip into its thoughts about this power is still out, and oh my gosh, if it's a terrorist attack, what are we going to do? I created images of all the people in the hotel lining up in the hallways, and you know, it was just this. And then the mind kicked back into the meta, and it would go back to that wish for well-being and safety. And that experience really showed me just how deeply connected that fear and that wish for metta were. The the flip side of that fear was a very deep, profound feeling of love and connection. And then the mind would slip into its habitual ways and the fear would explode again. But I could see that there was a, a link... That the wish for safety and the fear that safety was not possible, the uncontrollability, that I didn't have control over safety, that's where the fear came from. But that the wish for well-being was a valid wish. So when these core wishes meet these core truths, that collision, the seeming irreconcilability of these two is often where suffering is born. We meet the truth of the uncontrollable. We say, no, no, it's wrong. It shouldn't be uncontrollable. We meet the truth of impermanence and we think, what have I done wrong? Reactivity is born when we resist the truth. And yet that reactivity is also connected to this wish for well-being. We may, through our practice even, begin to orient towards the teaching of impermanent, unreliable, out-of-control and recognize the vulnerability of experience, the impermanence, how we respond to uncontrollable and impermanent, that, that vulnerable feeling. We may explore that by bringing wisdom to the situation. Oh, this is just the way it is. Things are uncontrollable. Vulnerability. It's the way it is. Things are uncontrollable. And this can be helpful. Bringing wisdom in can help to balance our mind. And yet, I've seen in my own mind at times and heard as I listen to retreatants report experience and students report what's going on in their minds, I sometimes hear that orientation towards, oh, okay, it's impermanent, it's unreliable. It's a subtle way in which we are almost denying that wish for safety and well-being. We're trying to convince ourselves, impermanent, unreliable, out of control, that's the way it is, that should be okay. Almost as if we feel like We have an unseen belief that since things are impermanent, unreliable, out of control, the wish for safety, the wish for happiness, the wish for well-being is valid, is not valid, that it's not the right wish. We might think that. We can use an intellectual understanding of this teaching of things as they are to deny and repress those deep, wholesome wishes. The wish for well-being, happiness, is, is love, it's compassion. And yet our relationship to those wholesome wishes often includes a craving or a belief that if I were doing things right, those wishes would be fulfilled. And this is, this is a paradox for us, in a way. That we, we think part of our mind has the belief that the wishes are only valid if they can be fulfilled in the way I would like them to be fulfilled. As opposed to connecting to the wish itself. I mentioned this the other night in the compassion practice that sometimes we have a struggle in wishing for freedom from suffering for someone or a situation that seems like it's impossible to change the conditions and yet we we do wish for that freedom from suffering even though it's not possible sometimes to change the conditions the wish is what we are connecting with as i said the other night if i if my wish if i could if if my wish for war to spontaneously cease on this planet and for peace to be spread on this planet if that could be fulfilled that is what i wish the connection to that deep wish is not invalid simply because the wish can't be true in this moment. And so this is an exploration we make around our wishes as well. The hidden demand for our wishes, the wish of love, of compassion, to be fulfilled in a certain way That hidden demand creates anxiety and fear, confusion, frustration, anger, rage. When those wishes are not met. Wisdom asks us to let go of the expectation, the hope, the craving for a particular outcome around these wishes. But it doesn't ask us to let go of the wishes themselves. In fact, I think wisdom asks us to embrace those wishes. And so this is a paradox to hold, for our heart to stretch to hold both these wishes for well-being and the truth of uncontrollable, unreliable, impermanent. Our heart can stretch to hold both. And yet the way we do that is by noticing where it's not, where it's struggling. We've talked about our suffering offering us the lessons we need and this is partly why because when we are suffering you know it's a pointer it's a pointer back to these two very crucial things this truth of love and this truth of truth And so the exploration around suffering is one of honoring because the suffering itself contains those threads. The threads of love and compassion and the thread of truth. When I was... In some of the early days of my practice, or not even just the early days, <laughs> you know, as I explored suffering, I often had this really dive in kind of approach. It's like, oh, suffering, and I, I, I would get kind of into it. And, and, and yet I still kind of believed at some level, it's like the suffering is like some tumor. And what I need to do is to find the perfect scalpel that will just cut this out and take it away. And that was kind of my approach. I believed, that's what I believed, that the suffering, the anger, for instance, the anger was wholly bad. And yet it's not wholly bad. There's some misunderstandings in the anger, misunderstandings, misattributions around these wishes and these truths. And so the way, a way to explore this is to honor our suffering. Allow it to reveal the love and the truth. It's not that we can dive in and say, oh, where's the love in the middle of this anger? You know, in my own practice around this, it really has felt much more like an embrace of whatever struggle it is, wide arms holding it as softly as I can, with as much open-heartedness as I can muster in this moment, to meet that struggle, and let it reveal itself. Our struggles, our reactivity, has so many layers to it underneath. Anger might be confusion, might be fear, might be vulnerability, might be a wish for safety. And yet we can't just dive into the middle and say, okay, well there's anger here, where's the, where's the, where's the uh, love in the middle of it? It has to be much more organic and much more, um, okay struggle. I'm willing to sit with you. Show me what you are. Show me the layers. Show me the thread of wisdom. Show me the thread of love, but not demanding how it reveals itself. Patience in this exploration. Very soft, gentle, I kind of settle back in my approach when it's possible. When it's possible. When I can meet reactivity and know it without it getting stronger, without it feeling like I'm getting swamped or pulled into the rabbit hole of that difficulty. Whenever I can meet it and hold it. That's my approach. Like, Okay. I get to see a little bit of this how this thing is put together this time. And then maybe it lasts for a certain length of time and goes away and comes back later. And it's like, okay, I get to see a different perspective on it that time. Over the course of one stretch of a few weeks at at, uh, Shui Umin, the monastery where Saito Tejaniya teaches, I was watching depression. Depression coming and going, just willing to meet it, Noticing the conditions, noticing it arise, recognizing that sometimes it arose when I was really calm. That was kind of interesting. And so I I just started getting interested in the pattern itself. Not to get rid of it, but to understand it. Just to understand it. Many of the tools that I've shared on working with difficulty have come from My own practice exploring. I've offered you several of the ones I used at that retreat. You know, the the exploration of, oh, there's depression. Okay, well, there's many other things happening. Let me just, you know, there's depression and there's seeing and there's hearing. Oh, there's the depression and there's the body sensation, just broadening the container so it's not the dive in kind of thing. Noticing when it's absent. Recognizing, oh, it's not always here. Seeing when it arises, the conditions, wow, it comes out of calm. Wow, how does that happen? So just curiosity to explore it. And then one day, as I was feeling into the, the depression, I um, was walking back to my room to do my meditation was doing walking meditation exploring a lot of this and I went back to my room to my to to my room to do my meditation my still posture which I was doing in the lying posture and the 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 heart felt that the the depression felt very vast really big but kind of diffuse so it wasn't like heavy vast but it was pretty vast and as I sat down and began exploring the the vastness of this, depression. Just feeling into that, you know, just like, okay, I can't really point at it, but it's like being in this fog. And there it is. And then at some point in that, it just like, it expanded. It got bigger, it got bigger, it got bigger, and at some moment, it flipped and became metta. That was not what I was expecting (laughs) to find in the Depression. And so I couldn't have really looked for it. And, and I feel too that the, that the power of the allowing was what gave the love the opportunity to show itself. And then the next moment of my experience, the very next split second of my experience, as the mind was in the space of, the depression had been very vast, the meta was equally vast this vast field of meta I was sitting in. The next moment my mind said, this is stupid, this is sappy, this is corny. I smiled and laughed and it's like, ah, I see. A kind of an understanding of uh, the mind's relationship to that quality. Creating a feeling of Depression. So there was an understanding of how the depression was put together laid on top of this vast feeling of metta. And so I tell that story to encourage a not knowing of ex- in the exploration, a not searching for anything, but a willingness to allow the struggle to reveal what's there. And it will reveal something. This morning as I was reflecting on this topic, I, I came up with another analogy that, that I think I've heard before, but I can't remember who said it, so I can't give credit to the person it came from, unfortunately. But, but it arose in my mind too. So and it was kind of like the, the experience of these constrictions, these struggles... It's like ice. It's hard, it's solid, it's 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 frozen. And we feel frozen sometimes with our struggles. And the mindfulness, the allowing creates the conditions for the ice to melt. There's no change in any of the molecules of that water it's a different state but they're all still water molecules it's kind of like our craving our clinging is the cold temperature that solidifies things and it's not like we have to throw the ice cube away we throw the ice cube away we lose the water the melting will reveal these threads back to love and truth. To me, this Quality of allowing in practice, cultivating an allowing attitude is so helpful. We allow the fullness of our human experience, allowing mindfulness, loving awareness rejects nothing. In so many ways I think some of our struggles in life come from really wanting to be seen. Our our wanting, our reaching, our, our feeling of something being off or wrong is a feeling of not being seen, not belonging. And in this practice of cultivating a loving awareness and allowing attention, we can see ourselves more fully than anybody else ever could. And discover in that process that 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 full allowing, full loving heart towards whatever is happening may be the very thing that we were looking for, for some, from someone else. Through this practice we can belong to ourselves. And in that process, support a community of belonging in the world. A poem by Izumi Shikibu. Watching the moon at dawn, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely. No part left out. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening.